I'm Gary Bembridge, and this is Tips for Travellers, the global travel destination podcast. Each month, a new destination is featured with recommendation, advice, and tips based on the first-hand travel experience I gain from the two to three times a month I travel all over the world. You may also want to check out the Tips for Travellers video podcast, a sister podcast which features videos I've made of hotel rooms or attractions with commentary and recommendations linked to the destination featured each month in this audio podcast. To find out more, visit tipsfortravellers.com. For travellers is spelt with two L's, the UK way, or email me at gary at mytravelreviews.co.uk. You can subscribe to one or both of the podcasts by searching for Tips for Travellers or Gary Bembridge on iTunes or your favourite podcast directory. On this edition of Tips for Travellers, I'm going to talk about the Channel Tunnel and the Eurostar. When travelling between London and Paris or Brussels, I would very definitely recommend that you choose the Eurostar train through the Channel Tunnel over flying. You can travel by Eurostar from city centre to city centre in a much less hassled, time-intensive way than you can by flying. And I'm going to talk in much more detail about the advantages of the train over flying. But I thought before that I'd talk a little bit about the Channel Tunnel itself, which the train goes through, uh, talk about St Pancras International Station in London, and then talk about you know, the pros and cons of travelling on Eurostar versus flying. Now, let me talk first about the Channel Tunnel. Now, the history of how the Channel Tunnel, which the Eurostar uses to pass from the UK onto the continental Europe, is a very long and quite a complex one. Both Britain and France have been major trade and maritime partners and at times, of course, rivals for centuries. And there are only 37 kilometres between the UK and Europe at its narrowest points. That's only 34 kilometres. But trading and crossing has at times been very hazardous because although it's only a very short distance from, say, Calais across the Straits of Dover, the seas on the Channel can be very rough and very unpleasant. So even with modern ferries, a crossing can be unpleasant. Now, I've been on ferries where most of the passengers have been throwing up and seasick, even though it's a relatively short trip. A century or so ago, it could even take you up to six or seven hours to cross that short distance in rough seas. Now, it's actually been argued that Queen Victoria, who was fatiguing particularly queasy on such a trip, challenged her engineers to try and find another way to cross. And this really increased the momentum to find a solution, a better way than crossing on the sea. Now, over the years, there were many and varied ideas put forward on better ways to cross the Channel. In fact, a tunnel had even been suggested as far back as Napoleonic times, but was resisted partly because the technology didn't really uh, enable it to happen. But also, there was huge concerns by the military that it would actually be a simpler way of invading the UK because it would make it much easier to send troops from continental Europe into the UK. Finally, in 1986, the UK and France finally, finally managed to agree on the best approach, which was to have a rail tunnel instead of the alternative which had been looked at, which was a long suspension bridge. Now, the Channel Tunnel started to be dug in 1987 and was finally completed in 1991, although the Channel and the Tunnel was actually only opened in May 1994 for traffic. 
An Anglo-French consortium called Transmanche Link constructed it, and the client was a company called the Eurotunnel Group, who still own and operate the tunnel now. The cost of building the tunnel was massive. It was a private enterprise, and the company had humongous amounts of debt, as building the, the tunnel ran 80%, 80% over budget. And it finally cost a staggering £6 billion to build. And that's probably, what, about 10 billion US dollars. Now, the company from that time onwards until pretty much now has struggled for years. And in fact, most of the shareholders who, who bought shares at the beginning lost the entire value of their investment because it had to constantly restructure, it had to turn debt into shares. And so those people who originally bought shares pretty much were left with, with very little. It took 13,000 engineers and technicians to construct the tunnel. And in fact, it's a slight misnomer to call it a tunnel because there are actually three tunnels in all. There's two running tunnels, one each way, and then there's a smaller service tunnel, and there's actually a crossover in the middle in case there's an emergency, so the trains can actually change to either side. So if one of the tunnels is blocked, it can change. And, of course, the service tunnel became particularly uh, well-known when there was a major fire um, some years back, and passengers had to be evacuated via that service tunnel. The tunnels themselves are about 50 meters underneath the seabed. And it was actually relatively, in relative terms, easy to dig as a tunnel because there's what's known as chalk marl underneath the sea, and that's a relatively soft kind of rock, and it's, in relative terms, it's, it's quite easy to dig through. And about 85% of the tunnels have been constructed through this chalk marl because it is a much easier and, and practical thing to, to actually tunnel through. Now, there's a terminal is in Folkestone in the UK, and there's one near Calais at a place called Sangat. There's a total of 84 kilometres of tunnels were constructed on the English side and about 69 kilometres of tunnels on the French side. And underneath the, the sea, the tunnels are about 30 metres apart. Now, there are a couple of options that you can choose to travel through the tunnel. You can either go on a passenger train, which is Eurostar, and this is a completely separate company to the Channel Tunnel Company I spoke about. And the Eurostar departs from London, from Paris, and from Brussels. And you, so you can travel from London to Brussels and back, or from London to Paris and back. You can also go on a drive-on service, which kind of keeps changing its names, but I think it's currently called the Eurotunnel Shuttle. And basically, close to the tunnel entrance, you drive your car or your truck into special rail cars. So you actually drive all kind of all down to the channel, you board the train with your car, and it zooms you through. The Eurostar itself, if you're traveling from, say, London to Paris, is very quick. It takes about two hours and 15 minutes to travel from London St. Pancras to Paris Gare du Nord. Now, before I talk about the advantages and disadvantages, I just want to briefly talk about the Eurostar St. Pancras International Station, which is stunning and very impressive. Now, when the Eurostar first started running, it left from London Waterloo, which is sort of more the south part of the city. And now it leaves from, uh, since 2007, November 2007, it leaves from a, a rebuilt, uh, refurbished London St. Pancras station, which is more in the south, uh, north of the city. Now, London St. Pancras is next to King's Cross Station, as I said, in the north of the city. And the King's Cross Station itself has also been kind of renovated and, and revamped. And um, let me tell you a little bit about 
London St Pancras because it is the most incredibly beautiful and stunning uh, station. First of all, it's a stunning space. The renovation took a 150-year-old station and really just revamped it. There's a massive glass and steel roof and, and a doomy massive. And when you enter the station, you enter into this glorious, open and gleaming space. It really is breathtaking. And what you find is people who come into the station for the first time or leave from the station from the first time will just get out their cameras and take pictures. It really is, is, is breathtaking. And basically, the, the, the station and the layouts is evolving as they learn what works. So it's probably a little bit more settled down because it's been running now since 2007. But they basically focus on making a very smooth passage. And the large open spaces do make it for a, an easier trip. To, you can fetch your tickets, the check-in terminals, less cluttered. There's, you know, easy to get through security points. Now, peak times in the early morning, and particularly in summer, it can be a little bit frantic, a little bit busy. But generally, it's, 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 it's quite easy-flowing, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. What's also important to note is the facilities before you go through the, the check-in are fairly comprehensive. There's lots of shops and cafes and, and so on. But once you get through, there's, there's not much on the other side. Um, now, I originally thought it was slightly strange, but in reality, you don't have to be at the train much before it leaves, and so there's not a lot of time to kind of loiter in, in a sort of a retail mall before you, you, you check in. There's a, there's a coffee shop, a Cafe Nero, there's a WH Smith, which is a newsagent, there's some cash uh, machines where you can take out euros or pounds, um, and also what's good is there's a kind of a workspace, which is a long desk area, which has both UK and Europe plug sockets, plenty of them. You can have 40, 50 people sitting around on their PC, um, and there's free Wi-Fi in the hall in the station. So you can now also you know, check your emails or, or, or whatever. Now, that's also important because the train still has no Wi-Fi, um, and they keep talking about introducing it, but the Eurostar does not have Wi-Fi. If you're a business traveler, and I'll talk about that in a second, there is a, a, a large business lounge to the right of the hall, which is on, on two floors. It has lots of magazines, drinks, all the, all the usual stuff. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about who has access to that in a second. So let me talk about why do I think if you're traveling from London to Paris or London to Brussels or vice versa, why it's better to go on the train or flying. Now, for four and a half years... I was working in both London and Paris. I was living in London, but my team were based in Paris. So I spent a lot of time commuting uh, many times a month, uh, you know, at, at points every, every single week of almost every single year, you know, week of the year I was commuting between the two. So I'd obviously tried out flying and I tried out the train. And, you know, when people ask me, I would say there's no competition. If you're traveling from kind of central London and you want to be in sort of central Paris – the train is the best way to go. Now, there's a couple of reasons, and I'll tell you what they are. The first of all is getting through the airport. Now, as we all know, with the needed security, it's very stressful, it's very cumbersome, it's very time-consuming, uh, especially at Heathrow. You queue, you shuffle along, you have the hassle of taking off your shoes, your belts, your laptops, your liquids in bags, and so on. And it, it is kind of an inefficient system at the airport, even in the new Terminal 5, uh, and you can, it can take you ages to get through security. Now, in Eurostar, the checks are much less complex. Basically, you put your bags, whether it's your suitcase or your carry-on through one screen, you put yourself through another. You don't need to remove laptops. It's a much smoother, easier process in terms of getting through security. 
And of course, you have all your own. You, you have to carry, of course, all your own bags the whole way, both yourself and on the train, and so on. So that could be something, I guess, if 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 that's an issue. But they do have porters that can help you out. So it is much easier to get through. The second point is check-in time. Now, with the Eurostar, you need to be there thirty minutes before, and with business ticket, you can actually get through fifteen to ten minutes before the train leaves. Uh, they have special business uh, uh, check-in areas. So this is a real boon, particularly, you know, with flights, you need to be there 45 minutes to an hour or before. And, of course, you, you know, so th- that's a big advantage. You can just get there 30 minutes before. If you're with a business ticket, up to 50 minutes before and get on the train. The third point is the central city departure and arrival of the train. Now, it's a very unpredictable commute to Heathrow, from central London, and, you know, those who've travelled to Charles de Gaulle in Paris, or even to all in Paris, know it can take ages to get to and from the airport. Now, because you depart and arrive at St Pancras Station in London, or on the Paris side of Gardenor, which is also pretty central, uh, you know, it's much, much easier if you're travelling from a central place. Now, if you're actually not in the city centre or your meetings or whatever, or your hotels outside of London or outside of Paris... It's a different story. So, for example, our offices in the UK were based, you know, just past Heathrow. So clearly it was crazy to try and go all the way to town. And it was probably you'd saved time door to door by going uh, flying. So, But if you're in the city, it is much quicker and easier to go on the train. In the fourth, uh, the fourth reason is about delays. Now, flights, although they're incredibly short, the actual flying time between, say, London and Paris is only about 30, 35 minutes. But flights are almost always delayed, in my experience, between London and Paris. Now, the train generally runs on time, although saying that, if there's a problem on Eurostar, it tends to be a big one. And then it can be many, many hours. You know, if there's a real big problem on the track or there's a breakdown on the train and it's blocked or whatever, you know, you're talking hours and hours and hours. But pretty much the niggling thing with the flights is there are always delays. And because it's basically the planes are shuttling backwards and forwards, there's big knock-on effects. But generally, you know, in all those times that I've traveled, I've found, you know, nine times out of ten, the train has been exactly on time. But the one time out of ten when it's wrong, it's a big issue. Uh, so, so that's another point. The delays, it tends to be less delayed um, and much more, you know, you can set your watch a little bit more to it. In terms of the fifth point, one of the big advantages going on the train is you have time and you have space to relax, work, and in fact, even eat. I get a lot of work done on the two hours and 15 minutes train trip because basically once the train, once you're there, you're on the train, you have two hours and 15 minutes. Where of course, with flying, you can't because you're boarding, you're taking off, you're landing, you have to pack stuff away. And the flight is very short. You probably have about 15 minutes to, to kind of do anything meaningful. But on the train, you can relax, you can walk about, and even no matter which class you're traveling in, whether it's standard class or standard premium or business premium, you have a comfortable amount of space, you have a table, you have, if you're in the top two classes, uh, you have power for your laptop, um, you know, so you, you also have meal service, either if you're in business or standard select, you have meal service included, which is brought to you at your uh, at your seat. Or if you're in standard, you have a kind of a bar place, where, a bar carriage, you can go and buy it. Um, in terms of space, you have a lot of space, much more than you would ever have in economy. And in fact, much more than you even have in, in business on a, on a flight. In standard, you have um, four seats across two and two. In, in business, you actually have two on one side and only one seat on the other side. So there's much more space and there's just much more 
you know, uh, time to do things. The last one of all is the station. St. Pancras is a beautiful station. It's impressive, I've already mentioned. Uh, so that's, uh, for me, is actually a boon, a boon. It's just so much nicer going to St. Pancras than kind of fighting away through, through the airports. Now, if you want to find out much more, see much more pictures, see some videos, if you go to my blog at www.tipsfortravelers.com, and remember that travelers are spelt with two L's, the UK way, and you search for Eurostar, you'll find a whole series of articles with lots of photographs, lots of links, and included there, which I haven't covered in the podcast today, I've also talked about the, um, the, the, the business lounge at Gardenor and the business lounge at St. Pancras. Uh, which are accessible if you're either traveling in the uh, business select or if you have a carte blanche holder, which is basically your frequent flyer equivalent card, uh, or if you're actually an American Express platinum or, or silver card holder, you also have access to the lounges. And the lounges are great. They're very big. They're very spacious. You have snacks, you have newspapers, and so on and so forth. So as I said, if you go to the blog, you can find out much more about Eurostar, pictures, links to more articles and more in-depth. So hopefully that's helped. Uh, the only other point I would say is with the train is it's very important to plan ahead if you want to get really good prices. So you can often get very low fares if you're flying between London and Paris by fiddling around with times and so on. But with the train at busy times and peak times of day, it can get very expensive. But if you plan ahead, you can get very reasonably priced tickets. So hopefully that's been helpful. And until next time on Tips for Travellers, here's to great and fun travels. You've been listening to Tips for Travellers, the global travel destination podcast. A new destination with first-hand based advice, recommendations and tips is added each month. If you subscribe to the podcast, thanks for your support. If you don't, you may want to consider subscribing by searching Tips for Travellers or Gary Bembridge on iTunes or your favourite podcast directory. You can then subscribe to the Tips for Travellers Global Travel Destination audio podcast or the video podcast with hotel rooms and attractions. To find out more, visit tipsfortravellers.com, the travellers is spelled the UK way with two L's, or email me at gary at mytravelreviews.com. Co.uk.